Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And uh, speaking of consciousness culture, of course, uh, another uh, hard C word there is California. And as a Californian and a longtime student and a devotee of the state, um, I've had many uh, wonderful encounters, almost always uh, at some distance, with the various characters, artists, magicians, uh, uh, mystics, uh, uh, entrepreneurial whack jobs that have made up the uh, very colorful uh, uh, character of this state. Um, but a uh, few have made as great a mark on me um, as the long-deceased now artist Wallace Berman. And I remember very directly when I first discovered Berman's work and who told me it was the great Mike McGonigal we had on the show many, many years ago back in the oh. terrible audio days. So only dig into the archive if you're, uh, if you're uh, ready for some crackles and uh, low bandwidth effects. Uh, but Mike has always been a, a hipper guy than me and one where I've just embraced it. I don't, I'm glad he's there. I, I don't feel competitive with him. He's always, he's always turned me on to amazing stuff. He did uh, uh, zines back in the day and put out records and he, he was part of the publisher that put out my last book, uh, Nomad Codes. He did Yeti uh, publishing and of course the great zine chemical imbalance back in the day. Anyway, he told me about uh, two of these characters, Bruce Connor and Wallace ah. Berman. And uh, Wallace Berman, you know, probably a lot of you haven't heard of, and maybe you've just heard his name. Um, if you're in front of a computer, you might as well just go on uh, uh, onto Google Images and, and check out some of the, some of the work. Uh, in my mind, there's sort of three clusters, main clusters, uh, worth thinking about. One are these Verifax collages he did with this early kind of Xerox machine that combined a sort of McLuhan-esque sense of the media explosion of the 1960s with just a series of images that somehow managed to speak to the spirit and to culture and to comedy and to the human re reality. Uh, they're both intimate and very much of that kind of early remix uh, culture, we might call it now, um, that came out of the assemblage movement and the, the love of collage and juxtaposition that so much characterizes a, at least a lot of my favorite elements of California kind of post-war beatnik hippie art. Um, along those lines, uh, Berman also put out the remarkable collection or set series of, of publications essentially called Semina, which are basically early mail art um, experiments um, using, you know, again, sort of a collage aesthetic of quotations and elements and photographs and things that would be put together into different ways and distributed almost entirely for free to a small network of friends. It was occasionally uh, sold and, of course, extraordinarily valuable today. And there are some books that collect uh, the Semina images. And you just, just by looking at it, you get a sense not only of how these various undergrounds of uh, European avant-garde and uh, beatnik experience and uh, drugs and mysteries sort of like percolated through the underground, but also, and this is much more central, I think, to Berman's work and in a way makes him always invisible or, or hard to get a hold of, is that it, there, it's also about 
building social networks. It's also about creating relationships between people. Uh, and he was very much, a, 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 on the one hand, a kind of hermit who didn't really go for the mainstream art world uh, hardly at all and, and was very, um, in some ways, resistant about spreading the word about his work and in other ways was very supportive of the other artists and other characters and poets and uh, filmmakers and rock musicians that came across him and were often very much moved by him. The guy had a lot of charisma and it comes through his work and it comes through the stories about him even though he wasn't at all a blowhard. I mean, he was friends with... Cameron, who you know we've talked about many times on this show, Dennis Hopper, Hopper Dean Stockwell, Russ Tamblin, Brian Jones of the Stones used to come by their their shack in uh, in, uh, in in L.A. And so I've always been fascinated with Wallace Berman, and I was incredibly happy to hear that his son Tosh Berman uh, just put out a book, Tosh, growing up in Wallace Berman's world. And I had met Tosh, not really personally, but I was aware of him through a mailing list that we were both on back in the day, a kind of secret underground uh, arts and literary uh, mailing list, uh, most of whose posters um, were not exactly to my taste. But I remember Tosh's posts vividly because he has a very, uh, though he's he's worked a lot with, with the avant-garde, he's done, you know, avant-garde film screenings, He's he ran a... a, a, a a publishing group, Tam Tam, that put out a lot of French avant-garde writing, um, and he's very hip. <laughs> and at the same time, there's this charming, I don't know what the word is, I, I stumble over it. I don't want to say simplicity, I don't want to say childlike character, but there's this directness and freshness to his approach and his speaking that is disarming and makes me realize how convoluted and overly complex and self-reflective most of us are. Uh, and so <laughs> it was great to hear Tosh read, and I was very happy that he agreed to come on the show. So with, with enough of my introduction here, Tosh, thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. That was an incredible introduction. Well, that thank was amazing. you. That was amazing. I mean, do you actually need to be on the show? I mean, you pretty much... Got it all, I think. Yeah, people have, have accused me of that before. I'm, I'm like, they're kind of. You're like, not accusing. You're very skilled at this. <laughs> really, really, really good. But you I know, could, I, I could add the little details or the little nuances. You know, I, I could, I can do that for your show. I'm sure you're gonna for do. You. You're gonna comport yourself uh, more than more than ably. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, I really did just, I just enjoyed reading whatever else I learned, you know, like my, mm -hmm. my kind of scholar, uh, data hound nature wanted to read the book to find out the, the details on Cameron and George uh -huh. Herms and uh -huh. what was it like in Topanga and all like, you know, and I, I learned a lot and that was great. But mm. all the things I learned weren't is I mean, what was really fun was just how much fun it was to read this very uh, sprightly memoir. It felt like I I, I got a, a feel for the for the place in those times and those people mm. that's hard to do because at one remove, if you're someone like me, it's very hard not to romanticize it, not to build it up, not to you know, make it into some kind of absolutely magical existence. Mm -hmm. And while, you you know, there's not a terrible dark side and you don't spend tons of time, you know, uh, listing everybody's faults, there no. is this sense of uh, just a very straight sense of reality that comes through that mm -hmm. uh, that was really charming. I'm, I, this is so much in your voice. Did you feel like you had a, 
Did you have any goals for yourself when you were writing this in terms of like, I don't want to do this, I want to do this, I want to get this across, I don't want to worry about this kind of stuff? Or did you just start writing? I started writing, but as I started writing, I was thinking of the, I, I didn't want to write for myself, I want to write for an audience, for, the, for, you know, for a general reader. And I tried to express myself to, you know, I sort of picture as I was writing, I was sort of picturing a series of faces in front of me. Like I'm on stage, I'm a performer of sorts. And uh, I just wanted to perform well by writing well and hopefully give a description of an era that's often talked about but often overlooked at the same time. Um, due to most of the history that I cover or what's in my book, a lot of art, you know, art historians have covered that period, but not always uh, always in a truthful manner, but sometimes the facts are wrong or they're missing nuances a lot. And, it, and you know, it's it's the way we look at the world. There, there's good people and there's bad people. There's good and evil. And in my case, I don't see the world that way. I see the world as a mixture of good and bad. And I got that from my father and uh, from my parents. And um, and that is something I wanted to express in my book quite well, um, yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, I, want to, I want to articulate that a little yeah, bit more in my book. Yeah, I mean, when you, especially when you read the art historical stuff, which is mostly what what I've read about those times mm-hmm. as well. There's something about that approach that it, it even if it doesn't romanticize, mm-hmm. it it kind of like it. It's always got to like underscore the genius, you know. It's always got to like kind of put the individuals out of. Mm-hmm the fabric of everyday life to emphasize their value, you know, or their brilliance or something like that. And I do believe your father's work was brilliant and it it still, it still, but I also really just was always attracted to him as a character, you know, like who was Uh this guy? Like, what was he like? You get a sense, just the photographs, just that he, he Mm -hmm. was kind of, uh, I mean, he was so much his his own his own person, and you you really uh, you know communicate that very well. What did you think was d- most missed about depictions of your father uh, in the other kinds of accounts or, or popular culture or the ideas about him? I mean, you know, well, one, yeah, one thing has been always been built up, and it always made me uncomfortable. It's sort of the mystical aspect of my father. That, for instance, he's sort of a mystical man, or he was a guru, or he had a spiritual quality, which I think is partly true but he's also a great humorist he had a really great sense of humor kind of a goofy sense of humor and that has never been captured by like an art historian or other people talking about my father his sense of humor is uh, he never took himself that seriously as compared to other people taking him that seriously and a lot of times i feel people who wrote about him are projecting a lot of themselves onto him Sure, and things that they want. I mean, I, I love the cover for the book, by the uh, you know, by the way, because it it, it communicates not only the, the relationship between the two and your yeah. father, but it's super goofy. <laughs> it's it well, it's super goofy, but it's really I didn't realize it too much later as we're when we chose the cover for the, for that image for the cover because that cover is actually perfect for the book. It's really the relationship between me and my dad and my mom. Yeah, I mean, my mom's in there, but as a photograph, you know, and she's looking down at us. And I'm looking at my father. So every all the eyes are sort of on my father, in a sense. Yeah. And um, and that is a very accurate description of him. When he walked into a room, people looked at him all the time. Not just because he was weird looking, but he had a, he did have a charisma. He did have like a star quality about him. Uh, I didn't feel it that way as his son. 
that when I walked in a room with him, I could sense other people being um, not uptight, but definitely like excited or or nervous in front of him or don't know what to say in front of him or or they paid a little bit extra attention to him. And he really said anything to these people. I mean, he just he, all he had to do was just walk into a room and a light switch went on. That's amazing. One of, one of my favorite things about him is the, that you, you talk about, but of course you weren't around to, to witness it, uh, mm-hmm. were his early years when he was sort of on the edge of the kind of, you know, j- jazz, yeah. petty thievery, gambling, you know, downtown L.A. scene. Now, that's romantic. That, 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 that's, that's totally romantic to me. <laughs> but, but was it not the case? I mean, he did that, that record, you know, he did those early record covers mm-hmm. and he was mm-hmm. playing pool and stuff like that. It just seemed uh-huh. like at the time in L.A. for someone to, uh, for, you know, uh, a white guy uh, yes. to go into that kind of situation definitely showed that he was able, that he was not only curious about whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. uh, other things, other worlds, other forms of art, uh, but that he had the ability to carry himself well uh, yes. into those situations. He was quite brilliant in, in, in handling himself in probably a lot of different situations where or social things. He was a good hustler. He knew how to hustle, like in gambling. He probably knew how to hustle people in his own manner. And he understood the psychology of, of, other, of others. So he, when he's in a room or in a, in a situation, he knows how to figure everything out he had a great he had a great street sense that's for sure and um and, he, and you know and he was just a 15 year old zoot suit wearing uh dandy of sorts uh in the uh, you know in the in the in the roller two years and was heavily into swing dancing and bebop jazz you know at the time it was like the punk rock when it happened bebop jazz was this you know this crazed noise genius sounds are coming out of people like Charlie Parker and, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Dizzy Gripsy and, and Polonius Monk and so on and so on. And Los Angeles actually had very strong jazz clubs in the, in the forties. Absolutely. The mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good to, it's, it's, it's something about that, that style that he was cutting that really, uh, that, that came through as well, that he had a very particular sense of, of style that was understated on the one hand, but then could also be uh, very, um, again, charismatic or or or, uh, or magnetic. And you talk about his clothes a lot. You talk about kind of his style mm-hmm. and 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 how that set him set him apart. What 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 was that care that that quality that that uh, you're he trying definitely to had a he definitely had a his own sense of dandyism. You know, he, he's definitely um, he wasn't egotistical. But he definitely, in his own mind, dressed well, or he wanted to dress a certain appearance in front of the public or in front of people. And he took great care in his clothes. In fact, my mother, in the late 60s and 70s, made all his clothing, pretty much. Very rarely did he go to a store and buy, like, a shirt. It usually was made by my mother. So it was, you know, it was definitely, like, part of the uh, the beat thing, going into the hippie thing. And, and my father had, like, these sort of really beautiful flower handmade shirts made by my mom and um he was very fussy about his hair his hair was really long before it was you know people have long hair and he definitely had a sort of a, a, a charles baudelaire sense of uh, of clothing and the way he looked at culture including like the, the the drug world which he didn't never romanticize in fact he hated um uh, heroin and a lot of the hard drugs. But he did understand the 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 importance or the presence of narcotics 
in the art world as well as in the street life. You definitely know it was there, and he accepted that. You you, you mentioned Baudelaire, and of course you you know you know a great deal about the the historical avant garde, and especially mm-hmm. in France. And one of the things reading this is 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 it it's it, it gave me a little bit more insight into the relationship between these you know bohemian artists and poets who are who are very very consciously not mm-hmm. buying the mainline american life and they have uh-huh. this sort of space to operate and and build their own you know mm-hmm. worlds and old relationships how the the european avant-garde function for them how important or central was the example of the dadaists or the surrealists or or going back to someone like baudelaire or dandyism how Uh how in a way present was that tradition for these west coast you know and otherwise in other ways very cut off from european culture kind of folks well, okay. Generally speaking, I don't know if you ever looked, but you, uh, but if you ever seen photographs of uh, of uh, Paris nightlife of uh, young people during, um, say, like the late forties, very early fifties, the early Situationists, uh, the Friends and 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 the world of Boris Vian and Juliet Greco and Jean Paul Sartre. When you see pictures of them, you see some of these kids look like beatniks or beats. <laughs> you know, they look like West Coast beats. And some of you have like sort of like a punk do haircut, you know, that's, that comes out of like the 1970s England. But this is all like the late 40s and early 50s. And, you know, Juliet Greco, uh, do, you know who, do you know who Greco is? Do you no. know her? Well, Juliet Greco is the typical existentialist French singer of the late 40s and early 50s. She's still alive, actually a friend of Cameron. Uh, which I found out not that long ago. But Julie Greco is a woman who wore all black, had black eye makeup, and her, she had like very strict bangs and very straight black hair, which is the typical French woman existentialist. But of course, that also describes the American beat woman as well. So I've always felt there was a connection between the French culture and the beat culture in America. And of course, you know, the Beats admired uh, the Surrealists and the Dadaists and, uh, and, and people like Charles Baudelaire and, you know, and then and later Celine. And there, there are many like European writers that influenced the Beats. Specifically, my father, he loved, um, you know, he came from the streets. He was like a street guy. And he self-educated himself by going to the Los Angeles Library by reading poetry. And the poetry he read by chance or design or is, you know, Rabot. Mallarmé, uh, Charles Baudelaire. So he got that early, or the late 19th century portrait being down. But he also was aware of their lives. You know, and then Rimbaud is obviously a fascinating character. And, uh, you know, if anybody's a prototype beat character, that would be Arthur Rimbaud. Um, but anyway, I believe there's always a bridge or some type of connection between cultures. And I think the beats had a strong sensibility of the French uh, existentialist or the Boris Beyond era of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the French culture at the time. And French culture or the French existentialists love American bebop jazz music. They love American culture. So there is that bridge between those two cultures. I, I mean, one of the things I liked about, about Semina and also about, well, collage in general, which again is such an important part Mm-hmm. of of this sort of era and, and many artists that also poets were kind of you know bringing in s- selections of other things and 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 kind of juxtaposing 
uh, bits and pieces is that it, it also lets you feel the influences around people more more directly. And, and you find uh-huh. this in Semina with the quotations from Artaud and, all, you know, all sorts of uh-huh. characters. Uh-huh. And, and the and the images in in uh, in the Verifax collages as well, where mm-hmm. you get the sense of your, your father, you know, picking and choosing little chunk, little resonant chunks uh-huh. Uh, of the reality around him and making his work out of that rather than saying, ah, I am a, I am going to create something entirely new. You know, that does that sort no. of classic mode is not part of the scene really. Not part of the, not part of his scene. Yeah. He, I mean, he, I think he thought, saw himself as, as one of the many people carrying the seed. Semina is, is in Latin meets seed or it could also mean like semen or, or sperm. So it's a way of spreading the seed or the sperm that, that, you know, new humans, of course, come up, but also new ideas. So my father didn't see himself as the person, the artist, but uh, artist among other artists. And that's the way I believe he saw himself as, as, as an artist. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You, you make the point many times that he really just didn't talk about his art at all. He didn't talk never. about what it was going to mean or what. Never, never, never. Not to me privately, not to anyone publicly, never did interviews. Never talked to about anybody about him as an artist. Uh, he believed that his art itself spoke for itself. He's truly art for art's sake person. He truly believed that his work speaks for himself, and therefore, therefore, there is no need for him to verbalize about his art, which I, I actually agree with. I mean, if you do art, like a visual thing, why do you have to use to, to verbalize something that you do visually? Why do you have to verbally describe it? Boy, are you swimming against the current these days, man? I mean, it's like you come out if you're like, like artists. They go through art school and they come out and they already sound like art critics. They they have all the jargon to explain what they're doing and yeah. I, I think I think that I think that's a, that that is totally wrong. A wrong way of doing art. I think well, it's wrong. Here's a question, like a, a, a tension, if you will, in, in, your, in your father's career that, that you talk about in, in the book. On, on the one hand, you say, of course, he's a good hustler. He's a great people person. Mm-hmm. He was really supportive of people around him. He went to gallery shows. He knew everybody. Yep. And mm-hmm. at the same time, there was kind of a resistance. It's partly because of the, um, the bust, which we can talk about. But uh-huh. there, there was also like, it's like he didn't want to play the game. I mean, he could have played the game so much more than he did. Yeah, but he didn't. didn't. He didn't do it. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want that lifestyle. He did not want to join a gallery, not because he disliked galleries. He loved galleries, or he disliked gallerists. He loved galleries. He loved the people in the art world of the time. And up to his death, he loved going to galleries and museums. He loved all those people. But he did not want to be signed to a gallery. He didn't want to feel like he had to do a show every two years or every year. He absolutely did not want have anybody to have control over him or his artwork. None at all. And he was very almost mil- well. He was a military so in that position. So it's not. A, it, was a, it wasn't a personality thing. Like I don't like you, or I don't like the system. It's more like I w- don't want anyone to have any control of my work or me. I mean, another aspect of that that just was remarkable is that when he did sell work, he, you know, first he would tend to know the people he was selling it to. Yes. But if it uh-huh. was working with a gallerist, he'd go in there and he'd be like, I want 500 bucks for this. And yes. he didn't care how much the gallerist got for it down the road. It was like, it's 500 bucks to you. Yeah. I'm done with it. It's not like this investment, you know, no. thing that's no. so pervasive now. My dad lived by moment by moment, day by day. He never thought about the future. 
How does that seem to you when you reflect on your own life and growing in either growing up under that influence or or picking I, I, up that I, idea or living with it? I follow that pattern to this day. Uh, I because I have no choice. I cannot plan my life out in any fashion or any way. It's basically day by day, moment by moment with me. Um, you know, I got married so quickly. I mean, I got married in my thirties, but. It wasn't like I went in a long engagement, a long dating process. We got married like within like three months after I first met her. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take these types of decisions and do it quickly and follow that, that first instinct. And I believe, you know, I can't say I was raised because my father did not sit me down and taught me this. But just by living with him and my parents, my mom, Shirley, as well as Wallace, I, I you know, thinking about the future it was not in the cards at all it's just not a thing we talked about it was not anything planned out and my father you know he made a piece he needed some money for something you know something he wanted or he had to pay rent or not rent but food i don't know what but you know five hundred dollars is going to take care of that what he needed at that moment and he just wanted five hundred dollars now if the art dealer took that piece which he purchased for five hundred dollars and sold it for a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars he couldn't care less. He didn't care about that whatsoever. He just did not care. He never felt like he was being ripped off or, or you know, he asked for a certain price. He got the price and he was happy with it. That's remarkable. You, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, your mother a, a couple of times. And one of the, the things I really appreciate about the book is how, uh, you know, not in a condemnatory way, but, you know, you, 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 you frequently in the book refer to, the sort, the sexism of the beat scene or the hippie scene, yeah. and and even how it manifested in uh, your parents, and you know your your mom mm-hmm. never drove, and she didn't seem no. like your dad wanted her to drive, and no. she's making the club, you know, she did a lot of work. She was the one who had a kind of straight job. Yeah. Yes. Um, how do you think about that? Well, I mean that like that legacy now. Is it do you do you feel it's important to to really? Uh, emphasize that aspect of, again, a story that can be romanticized, that there was really... Yes and no. Uh, that, what I'm telling you, as far as I know, is a fact. You know, we, we're, we live in a sexist world. and We live in a racist world, all of us. So I don't believe I cannot be affected by sexism or racism. It's part of my DNA as, as an American, as a person of the 20th century, of, of a baby boomer. That's something I cannot avoid. And... Of course, sexism existed in the beat era as well in the arts. And is it wrong? Yes, but it was an accepted sense of wrong at the time. It wasn't really talked about at the time. It wasn't uh, debated till much later, like in the you know the mid late sixties. Of course, there's all these individuals who talked about uh, feminism or the difference between the genders, but it wasn't really that obvious everyday existence that 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 took place in the beat world or in the hippie world or in probably a lot of people's lives. So looking back now, we could go, we could think, oh my God, these people are terrible, or oh, that's horrible, or I can't believe I saw this book that was published in 1962 and it's all male poets and all white poets. Well, that was the existence of the time. It's not really the existence now, but in the, at that period of time, that was the fact, that was the existence. So when I do comment about it, I'm not commenting to, to condemning my father or, or my mother or, Actually, anyone. I'm just I'm just talking about what was what it was like in that era, and that and that's the truth. It was a sexist culture. We lived in it, and we you know operated under it in 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 our in our ways. How, how did your mother feel about your book? 
she just read it after it was published. So I was very, very nervous. She actually loved it. Um, uh, I was, I was, I was a little bit sensitive or scared that she may not like how I approach her role in, 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 in the narrative. Cause I feel like pretty much she was not, I don't want, she wasn't a victim, but she was definitely a person affected how, 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 a woman is treated by men, by men culture, and 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 uh, men culture to me, looking back, was pretty is pretty horrifying. But at the time, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. As a as a little boy, or as a teenager, or, or a young adult, I was not aware of that world. My mom never complained about it. It's just something that happened, and it was lived every day. But you know, my mom's still around, and I'm still around. You know, and. You know, we learn and we, we go on. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, earlier you mentioned that one of the, the elements of the image that you wanted to push back against about your, your father was the sort of mystical side. You know, he uh-huh. he made another series. You know, some of the images in the Verifax are kind of whatever, esoteric or Jungian. Uh-huh. And then he, he has this series of many pieces that involve the Hebrew alphabet, just as letters. They don't, they're not really words. The Kabbalah. But, the, but it has a sense, oh, it's got this Kabbalistic side. And then, of yeah. course, uh-huh. he's, he's friends with, with Cameron. And, Guilty. <laughs> you know, that's where I'm like, oh my God, is there, you know, that, that's where my secret desire uh-huh. to, to be, to be honest was like, there's some kind of secret transmission from Cameron to, yes. to the beats and they go through this thing and there's Berman and George Herms is in yeah. on it and this is whole yes. kind of thing. And of course it's much more casual, friendly, not yeah. so heavy duty as that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but it did seem like your father, if if we don't want to use the word religion or spiritual, but there is a sort of, I don't know what to what to say. There is sort of a gesture towards. Uh, he, he had a, he had an interest in spirituality of sorts, but he did not. He's never been to a church. He's never been to a, a Jewish temple. He never practiced magic with a K or with a C. He did card tricks. Yes, <laughs> he, he was good at doing card tricks and like little magician tricks. That. Yeah, but he was never like his friendship with Cameron was basically because he admired her as an artist and as, a, as and as and as a human being. She was a remarkable, great woman, Cameron. Yeah, what and, was she like? Tell tell me about your impressions of her as a, when you were a kid. Okay, as a kid, as my impression as a kid, she was she always struck me that she was a witch because she looked like a witch. She had red long hair at the time. Her face was kind of wrinkly. And she always wore like dark clothes. So she, to me, it was like the image of the witch. Then uh, beyond that, she never ever spoken uh, uh, to me as a child or as a teenager about the magic or magic practices. And as far as I know, he ne- she never talked about it with my mother and father that much. Cameron was very good at keeping. Um, she had a lot of friends, and she was very good at keeping friends separated from other friends, not due to for secret reasons or or but mostly just because she had a large social circle that she she could develop interests with my father and mother like about art like about doing art about you know drinking wine and listening to music and then she had the jack parsons side her husband where they dealt in you know in these uh alistair crowley uh, uh magic practices but she never really shared that with with other people outside of that world so she was very private. She was a very private person and very, very sweet, a very sweet woman and very fun. She's obviously a fun girl, you know, fun. You know, you, you, you know I, I imagine when she was younger, she must have been just like this incredible, attractive and incredibly fun. 
Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can totally imagine that. I mean, there's so many great characters in the book. I mean, one of the fun thing is a lot of the chats. It's, it's told not so much like a straight history, but sort of a little bit more like a jewel with different facets that are glittering. Yeah. And and a lot of those are these different uh, individuals, some of them not so well known, some of them well known. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point about how well known they are. But there are some really uh, amazing characters who came, uh, you know, through your uh, through your life, I didn't know at all about the kind of Rolling Stones connection and how um, good friends uh, Wallace got with with Brian Jones and and, mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And I still don't quite understand how that came about. Like, what? How did they find him? How did they, how, how was he at the right party? Was it through war? I mean, how, no. How did that come it was, about? It was through an amazing woman who I cannot give enough credit to is Tony Basil. Tony Basil is probably famous for most Americans or most people for having the hit song in the 80s called Mickey. Do you know the, do you know the song Mickey? No, I'm in one of the weirdos who actually knows that she's in a Bruce Conner film and I don't know that song. She, okay, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> that is such a fantastic thing. She, okay, she's the type of person. There's type of personalities that has it. Fans or listeners or art people appreciate art only know that fact we know that she's in the bruce connor film right breakaway but in the 80s she had this huge worldwide hit called mickey and mickey was a huge huge hit you can look up on youtube it's like there's a lot of videos of it great and tony and tony was at the time uh was a choreographer and, and a go-go dancer and she worked in hollywood she did a lot of all those beach uh blanket bingo Tea party rock and roll movies like she you know she performed behind Elvis Presley you know like doing the clam or something like that or Viva Las Vegas and then she um, uh, uh, she worked on, on American music shows like Shindig and Habaloo where she was one of the go-go dancers but then started choreographing dances she was the girlfriend of Dean Stockwell who was my dad's best friend at the time and uh, Tony had a connection with with the dean's world my dad's world as well as in the world of music and in the in the movie world and um she was a choreographer or co-choreographer of a show called the tammy show t-a-m-i show and it was like the first rock and roll variety film concert show and tony invited me and my dad to come to the dress rehearsal for the tammy show where there were artists like James Brown, the Supremes, uh, the Beach Boys, and of course the Rolling Stones. So I met Mick Jagger and Brian at the dress rehearsal that day. And Brian and my father really took off on this friendship thing. They became really, really good friends. And I think because um, Brian had a, a, has a deep interest in different cultures and different people outside of the Rolling Stone world. And uh, and for my dad, you know, he, he was Brian was a musician and was very open to other possibilities, other worlds, and they just really hit it off. They never actually sat around and talked about the Rolling Stones, for instance. They talk about um, music. They played records. They had record parties at, at our house. And uh, Brian was just a really, really sweet, really nice guy. You know, um, I'm saying that to emphasize that because he also has this reputation of being sort of a mean bastard. But I never ever seen that side of him at all he's always been just like really super kid friendly he really likes kids he really liked me as a kid and this really you know he was just amazing he looked like I, he's the first person i met who i've heard of beforehand 
And when I first saw him, when he first came, to, well, second time I saw him, when he came to our house, he looked exactly like the same guy who came off the album cover, the Rolling Stones album cover. Usually when you see famous people, you know they have a pimple, their nose is small or they're too big, big ears. But Brian Jones looked like Brian Jones, quote unquote. And I was so impressed with that. I couldn't believe somebody could look like that who also looked that looked like that exactly on the album cover. So it was amazing to me. Well, I love the whole thread of music throughout the book in the sense that uh, not only do you, you know, you give a lot of credit to how how genuinely hip your father was. It's and so unfortunately the word hip has kind of lost some of its its I richness. I know, I hate that. You days. know, the word hipster is so great. Yet now we use this new. You term can't say hipster. it. So I mean, you could still kind of sometimes say someone ah. was hip, but it doesn't really work that well. Anyway, there's yeah. not really a good word in, in, in its place. Nonetheless, no. he had it. You know, whatever he, he was bringing. He had, he had it. He had it. He had. He was bringing home the Velvets record. He was like yes. up up to snuff on a lot of really great music at a time where there was a lot of music. A lot of music people love, but mm. a lot of it, in retrospect, is as you point out, uh, is not always so uh, so glowing and gleaming. And then, of course, there's your obsession with music. I mean, you can yes. kind of tell from the beginning that, like, okay, here we got a real record collector. We got a real obsessive yeah. here. Of course, you've written uh, a book about going to to London to see uh, Sparks play every single one of their albums. Uh, yeah, you know, which is a, a, a an amazing feat. I I have to admit, <laughs> I have not climbed the Sparks uh, uh, mountain. I, I think that you know er, later in your book when you're talking about being a record collector, you're 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 very glam uh, uh, identified, and you have you have yeah. issues with prog rock and and, and yeah. metal. And I'm afraid that I'm I'm on that nerdy that nerdy side of the of the fence. But <laughs> but we, we but we can we can you know throw joints at each other through the <laughs> across the across Actually, the fence. You know, I'm starting to appreciate like King Crimson. This past year, I purchased all the early King Crimson albums. So I am changing. Excellent. My, ta my taste is evolving, and I now appreciate uh, the early Robert Fripp, King Crimson records. But I, I love them, in fact. I love talking about that glam scene and, and mm -hmm. friends and clothes and, and, and how you kind of, that, that became a, a sort of zone to, to play with things when mm -hmm. you were coming of, coming of age in, in the 70s, living in Topanga Canyon. Uh, Topanga Canyon is another place where there's a lot of myth, and you do yes. some good myth busting there. So, <laughs> give mm -hmm. us a slice of the of the myth and the reality <laughs> of uh, Topanga Canyon in the in the high holy days of the uh, you know Neil Young, etc. Well, the 70s. canyons. Okay, I lived in Topanga throughout my late childhood, throughout my teenage years, even to my young adult. Like I left around twenty or twenty one years old, and Topanga, you know, canyons to me are always a little bit strange. It's a it's a, it's an area a location between two other things. So Topanga is between the Santa Monica, the ocean, Pacific Ocean, and then the other side is the San Fernando Valley. And I feel a lot of people move to canyons because they want to avoid those two areas of the world or other places. So in a way, a canyon is very remote. It's just usually like two lanes going in, a lane going in, and a lane going out of the canyon, both sides, Santa Monica side as well as the as the valley side. And here we get like the utopia concept of sorts. Uh, communities get started. And during the hippie era of the 60s, the hippie thing was the dream utopia, this great platform or environment where there is free love. I'm not talking about this like this, this sexy stuff, but just talking about acceptance and this being 
and tune to each other and and grow a beard together and and smoke pot together or whatever. And I think there was a, that there was a period of time was just total utopia. But towards the mid to late sixties, it got darker. It became a more darker tinge. And a lot of the people who were citizens of Topanga, or a lot of them were women with single women with children. Uh, or if they have boyfriends, their boyfriends are like bikers or hippie guys or art or um, uh, drug dealers or you know rock and roll musicians of sorts. And um, for me, who loved glam rock, who loved Roxy music and David Bowie, the Panga was not exactly the best place for me. It was not the best place for me. And um, I, I really miss the urban landscape. I miss the concrete. I miss the buildings. Yet I'm stranded in Topanga, you know, because I had to wait till my father take a trip either to the valley or to Santa Monica to get a record or to see a building or see some life out there besides Topanga. So I didn't like Topanga. I felt Topanga was a, was a, was, it was a prison to me. And uh, the the music was was clearly part of the escape. I mean, it was it was such a, you know, it was clearly rock and roll. It was yeah. clearly had the, the the like the energy, the frisson of of something that the Stones had in the mm-hmm. in the early mid '60s, mm-hmm. but uh, it was definitely not hippie. <laughs> well, it was you know what it was. It was like the like the like the house band of Topanga would be Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and then Spirit was another uh, big band, and then another group called JoJo Gun that came out of Spirit, and then the Flying Burrito Brothers were, were always around Topanga and playing and playing at Topanga Canyon. There was a place called the Topanga Corral, which was a bar and a venue and a lot of bands came through there played at the corral including new young flying burrito brothers um uh, graham parsons of course who was part of flying burrito brothers my dad liked them a lot and um at times my dad would go to see flying burrito brothers at the Topanga corral there'd be nobody in the audience except him and five others and those five others were the rolling stones so it's just the rolling stones my dad at the Topanga corral watching flying brothers <laughs> that's hard enough for me not to get romantic about <laughs> i'll tell you it was boring <laughs> anyway, i had to set you up for that <laughs> so boring <laughs> rodney's on the other hand sounded like ah, a lot of fun now tell no, me that no. was a wonderful slice i i had heard tell of the club because i you know i like this uh, you know california history cultural history stuff but uh uh, tell me about. I, I want to hear a little more about Rodney's. Well, Rodney, okay, Rodney Bingheimer is a, uh, a a Los Angeles DJ. He still is. I'm not sure if he's known nationally or internationally. But Rodney at the time was a. Um, a I, I want to say that he was a male groupie, but in the sense that he hung out with music artists to help promote them. He was sort of like an A and R person for made from for various record labels, or he actually worked for musicians. And um, Rodney was one of those guys who came to Los Angeles and loved the pop music world. And full, um, in the 70s, he started a club called Rodney Stingheimer's English Disco, which at the time meant he was going to play singles by David Bowie and uh, early Mata Hoopo and Roxy Music and all those glam rock people like Susie Quattro and Mud and Slade and The Sweet and, and, and bands of that sort. And, and the only place you can actually hear this music in a public setting was at Rodney's. 
And Rise is a very interesting place because it attracted musicians. People like Led Zeppelin went there, Bowie went there. Uh, I think even Elvis Presley went there once. But it also has sort of a dark sexual side where very, very young uh, girls went there. And um, they were, they were the, the classic groupies. It was the era of the groupie era of the, of the, of the 60s and 70s. And the girls were really young. They were like 15, 16 years old. And definitely older men were there. And um, I never thought anything was strange about that because it was quite normal at the time. And um, it's only when you look back at it like 40 years later, you're going, huh, maybe that was a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the time, it didn't dawn on me whatsoever. And I had a lot of girlfriends or, or you know, friends or girls who, uh, who participated in the scene and went out with musicians who were way older than they were. So it was, it was, it was, it was, def- it was definitely, definitely the social framework at the time. You know, one of the things about music, also in in the book that I that I thought about uh, at the at the end when you when you you know tell the sort of the the tragic ending of your father's life yeah. when he gets uh-huh. gets in a car accident with one of these you know dirtbag stoner hippies in Topanga yes. who was yes. who was at fault and and yeah. then we lose this awesome guy uh, uh-huh. and you lose this awesome guy. Uh, mm-hmm. But was also that it was just at the beginning of the punk era, and just like Bruce Connor, you know, mm-hmm. p- punk rock just revi- revitalized that guy. I mean, he was already he was always vital, Bruce Connor. But uh-huh. but he loved that stuff, and he became a photographer in the scene, yeah. and you know, went to shows religiously, and his photographs are amazing. And I think about what because you've already even mentioned the kind of punk quality of like the jazz mm-hmm. scene and bebop or whatever but that your father would have just loved that <laughs> well you know bruce obviously lived longer and he actually bruce actually participated in the punk rock san francisco scene again as i mentioned earlier tony basil is i think partly responsible for that she she introduced bruce to devo for sure and D- and bruce did the devo film mongoloid yeah and that's all through the charms and the brilliance of Tony Basil. So I just want to, I just want to give her credit again for that. But my father had a my father had a, a really good antenna ear for like new music. He never was one of those guys that just like you know he loved bebop jazz of the forties and fifties, and he always loved that. But he didn't stay in that framework. I mean, he always listened to what was new. I mean, he didn't go out to find new things. He only found interesting new things. And you know when he died, he 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 heard the first Patti Smith album, Horses, and he liked it a lot. And he was also heard like some of the New York um, uh, bands, like Television. Uh, when their first album came out, I don't he, he wasn't alive, but I think their single "Little Johnny Jill" came out in '75, '74, independent single. And I think he heard that. And I know he liked it, and he. He had a really good appreciation for for artists who are really pushing the boundaries or trying to do something new. He, but, had, he had a great appreciation of that. But it also seemed like the the, the DIY in your face, and then vi- also very in this weird mm. way, kind of community oriented aspect of of punk would mm-hmm. have uh, would have really resonated with him as well. Yeah, well, he, I think so. I think so. And it, it comes to think that, you know, Semina was like the, one of the first zines, not the first zine, but one of the first art zines. But the, what made it unusual is that my dad did not sell Semina. He gave it away to people he liked or to friends. You couldn't buy Semina at the time. If you had Semina, the only way you could have Semina is by 
because you knew my father or or my father had had some type of admiration for for that person that's the only reason why they would have seminar in their hands One, so that's it that's like a diy thing that's sort of like you know I'm, I'm i'm bypassing the distribution i'm bypassing the economy of it all i'm just giving art just for art's sake to that particular person and and that is a very sort of a punk rock thing to do i think absolutely i mean that uh, that sort of speaks to uh, in a way you can you can also see that the the sort of drive to uh, to you know, rebel and turn away from the mainstream and create your own mm-hmm. c- counter world uh, has has maybe more f- uh, ferocity and uh, and tension in the punk era because it was it was clear that it was going to be increasingly hard to do that. Right. And that that re- brings me to my last kind of big question. Mm-hmm. When you know, fast forward thirty years from that period, and we're like. It's really hard to imagine living that kind of life. And so the oh, yeah. question I have for you is, without, without romanticizing it, mm-hmm. you look back at Wallace and many of his friends, and it took, whatever you want to say, it took a lot of courage to just follow your own muse, to not play a, the game, to uh-huh. live on very little money and, mm-hmm. and, and not plan ahead, not think of the future. And again, without romanticizing it like he was some kind of you know, sp- you know spiritually realized being, it took a lot to do that. But the space, the social space, the the geographical space, uh-huh. the economic space, even that a, a kind of allowed that to exist in mm-hmm. places in California, in North Beach, in Topanga, and Beverly Glen, and a lot of other places in Venice, etc. Uh-huh. Like, and that's gone, right? So. Yeah, the internet sort of took over. I think the internet is that space now. But can you? But but do those value? Like when I look back at your father, I admire. In addition to the work, I admire what seem like values that motivated him. And he might not have even thought of them as values, but I see them as as values, as sort of rules to live by or ways to live life in a way that I that I find incredibly admirable. And sometimes I go, you know, it's actually really hard to imagine living by those values in our in our contemporary environment with the uh-huh. economy's totally changed and yeah. and you, you can't make money and whatever and the internet mm-hmm. sort of changed the whole logic of subculture and everything's kind of da, da. and I don't mm-hmm. know whether that's me being you know I've been accused of being a little grumpy and old when uh-huh. I talk about the loss of uh, subcultural possibility on this podcast well, but I'm curious how you feel about it there's definitely a loss I mean the, it, there's been changes you know I think what you're acknowledging is not being old and grumpy you're acknowledging the changes in our culture and society um, if my dad's alive and I, you know, he died, so I don't know what he would be doing now. You know, he might start a band for all I know. He might, he might be like Vic Damone making, you know, singing standards. I don't know what he would be doing now. But I know that my dad appreciated the mediums. He loved the medium of, of the photo collage, Fairfax. He loved the medium of sculpture. He loved the medium of painting or drawing. He loved the medium of music. And now when, I, when I'm emphasizing the word medium, he really appreciate that 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 foundation or that structure that whatever that medium is. So he knew the difference between making eight millimeter movies and making sixteen millimeter movies or you know thirty five millimeter movies. He knew the difference between making an eight millimeter film and a video. He knew you cannot do an eight millimeter film as a video. You could do a video as a video or eight millimeter as an eight millimeter, but you can't really. You should not use your techniques in making eight millimeter film and putting it and making a video. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. 
So I think if my dad was alive, and I'm just projecting this, he would accept the internet, but he would do artwork that's only specifically for the, 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 the medium of the internet. He would do something that's just internet related and not meant to be printed out, not meant to be distributed other ways. He would just be, it would be very focused on that one medium. And that I, I think my father, if he was still alive, possibly would have worked in that manner. Not saying, he, you know, we don't know. We just don't know. No, we don't know. But I could see, I mean, I was a, around a lot of media art scenes in the mm-hmm. in the 90s, you know, when the, the internet, as we know, it was just kind of, emer- you know, emerging uh-huh. from the, the labs of, of uh-huh. scientists and, and uber geeks. And there was a lot of net art. There was a lot of stuff that was using the medium. And, you know, some of it wasn't that good, but but it definitely there was definitely a zone or a period of time when people were trying to come up with what is this, the language that's specific to this medium. Yeah. How do we kind of play with that? And that's you know yeah. a lot of that's a lot of that's you know it's it's still there if you look for it, but it's such a different beast now. You know, it's well, you know, each medium has its own restrictions and its own its own exceptional aspects of it. And my father was brilliant enough to know each thing has its minuses and pluses, and he worked within that foundation. And I think that is something he really respected. You know, we had a friend who who was a filmmaker and started making videos. This was like in the, in the 70s, early 70s. But his videos were very much like his movies. It was just sort of like, he's just doing his movies on a different medium. And my father criticized his work because he thought you should, if you're working on a video, do a video, don't do a movie. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. I think, I think that's a good criticism. Like, if you're going to, you know, if I'm going to write a blog, I'm going to write a blog. I do write a blog. But a book is totally different from a blog. It's a different medium, a different texture, different nuance. So he realized, or he taught me the difference between a record, a cassette, a eight track, uh, a book, you know, and it goes on and goes on in later life. Of, I know the difference between a blog and a book and a, 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 a projected three to five millimeter film uh, compared to a digital projection of a film. Um, it's basically, I think it's very important for artists to respect the medium that they work in and other mediums that they're, they are separate. But it could be equal, but they're separate. Do you have any, uh, a, a, I assume you have, must have some pieces by your father in your house. I'm kind of curious. I don't. Oh, you don't. So it, it, are there any uh, particular pieces or works that, that speak to you either because of their associations or because of the work itself? As I speak to you, right in front of me is the cover of Bebop Jazz that my dad did for Dial Records in the like nineteen forty seven. It's the first record that Troy Parker has appeared on. I have it because I purchased it through like eBay or someplace like that. All the work I do own, I do own work by my father, is in the gallery. I, I it, after a while I was just surrounded by my father's work. It was to me it became surrounded by a period of time, a past, and I just needed, I had to break away from that for me to write this book, Tosh, as well as uh, I wanted to focus on my wife's work for a while. And, and now my house is full of my wife's paintings, which I'm happy to live with, to live with. I love my dad's work, but I, I, I needed I need to be somewhere else for a while. And are you still in Los Angeles? I am in Los Angeles, yes. That, that, that's uh, it's a, it, that. There's another example of uh, of uh, of massive change. And and what's ahead for you? What's what's next up? I mean, ten years oh, on a book—that's a lot of time. Yeah. Um, good question. I've written. I have two other manuscripts that I'm completing, and they're sort of 
combination uh, short story and essays combined together. And um, in the year 2014, I did a, a, I made myself an assignment where starting January 1st, I'll wake up early in the morning, like 6, 6.30, I will start writing and researching, and I have to be finished by 11 o'clock that morning, and I post it on my Facebook page as well as on my blog, and I did that every day of the year in 2014. So I have something like 200,000 words. It's, it's massive, and I'm now editing it down and thinking of it as a book, make it into a book medium. Fun. And was it just about about everything, or did it have a focus? Uh, it's about everything, really. It's all, everything that I'm interested in, culture-wise and literature-wise. And I would sometimes make up stories, or sometimes stories are absolutely true. The reader probably doesn't know. It reads like a journal. So the, the reader will probably think, oh, this has really happened. You know, but it's not the case sometimes. But other times, it is the case. It's totally true. Oh well, that sounds remarkable. I look, I look forward to that very much. Uh, it's on, yeah, I have. A, there's a version of it on my blog. If you go to my blog, you you, you can find it. And where, how do we find that? Good question. What is my blog? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I just push a button and takes me there. It's, well, it's, it's, it's like www.toshberman.com. Excellent, excellent. Well, Tosh, thanks so much for uh, for talking with us on on expanding mind. I love it. I had such a great time talking to you, Eric. It was a pleasure meeting you over this uh, over the computer. Thank you. All righty. Well, folks out there, uh, until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>